You know, today in our series, Jewish Jesus, we're looking at the Festival of First Fruits. And it was built and designed as a series of parties that God gave to a group in an agrarian society who was used to working in the soil. As you see the passion of the winemakers and the work that took in of designing and putting together a wine, that was the same thing God's people had. That all year long they would be building and working the field and then the time of first fruits would come and you would offer to God your first grapes, your first fruit as a way of saying thanks to him for the harvest. That first fruits was a festival. You thank God for how he provided in the past and you were trusting him to provide in the future. And you want to give God your very best as a way of saying thanks for him giving you his very best. It's like going to a 50th anniversary or a 50th birthday party and you... You bring something to honor the host. You give them the best as a way of saying, we honor the years you spent in this relationship or in this company or in this university or or maybe it's uh, the years that you spent working and building this moment. Now, lest you think that God put this festival in place because he's trying to manipulate money out of people, there's one of the most unpreached verses in the Bible in Deuteronomy God says that if it takes too long for you to get from here to the temple to give your first fruits, then go ahead and exchange it. Go ahead and sell your first fruits where you're at for money and take the money and go ahead and use it to buy strong wine and strong drink and have a big party, invite all your friends and family and just celebrate how good I have been. Bet you haven't heard too many sermons on that one. And you shall rejoice, you and your household. The point of first fruits was to come and say, God, thank you for being so kind to us. God, thank you for being so, so generous in my life. You know, developing a heart of gratitude is one of the ways God wants to develop joy in our lives. Uh, Do you know joy is one of the most essential parts of God's character? In fact, one commentator put it this way. God is the happiest being in the universe. Isn't that amazing? You know, I wonder if that's one of the reasons why God loves celebration so much. I mean, don't you? Don't you love a great celebration? Uh, Patty and I just celebrated last month our 37th wedding anniversary. You know how you, you buy somebody somebody something that you know they're just going to love and how you just can't wait to give it to them? I mean, like it's burning a hole in your pocket? Well, that's the situation I felt like I was in, and I waited and I waited and I waited until just the right time. The day of our anniversary, I planned dinner. We went out to dinner, and while Patty wasn't looking, I slipped two tickets orchestra level, to Phantom of the Opera, under her salad bowl. Now, what you need to know about Patty is she loves a great musical. I mean, just loves it. And I was thrilled to do this for her. And when she finally discovered them, she was just shocked. I mean, she was excited. In fact, she was so surprised that the waitress noticed, came up to the table, asked what we were celebrating. We told her, and then she brought over two glasses of champagne, which just intensified the celebration. I mean, don't you love surprising somebody you love with something special? You know, God loves surprises. God loves a party. In fact, God loves... Uh, surprises and celebrations so much, 
he developed seven different parties for the nation of Israel to experience each year, year in and year out. Now, God called them feasts or festivals, and all seven are mentioned for us in detail in Leviticus 23. Now, I want you to notice what God says. Beginning in verse 1, it says, And then the Lord said to Moses, saying, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them the feast of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. These are my feasts. In other words, these are my parties, which you shall proclaim at the appointed time. And the passage goes on to communicate to us and show how much God loves surprises and celebrations. And interestingly enough, God's parties are all planned around the two growing seasons in Israel, spring and fall. And so for the nation of Israel, it all began with the very first full moon of spring. And on that day, God commanded that Israel would celebrate Passover, which commemorated the fact that the angel of death um, passed over the nation, ensuring their delivery from slavery in Egypt. And then God commanded a second party the very next day. This party was a week-long celebration. It was called the, the celebration of unleavened bread. And then, uh, and by the way, unleavened bread was there to commemorate the fact that uh, Israel had to leave Egypt so quickly, they didn't have time for their bread to rise, so they had to bake unleavened bread to take it with them. And then on the first day after the first Sabbath following Passover, God says, I've got a third party plan for you. This one was called First Fruits. Then 50 days later, a fourth party called Pentecost. And then you come to the fall and those parties that God planned coincide with the fall harvest. And the first one you find in the passage is trumpets, the festival of trumpets. And then it's followed by the celebration of atonement. And then as we saw last week, there was the celebration of tabernacles. Now all these feasts are laid out for us in order in Leviticus uh, 23. And what we want to do this morning is focus in on one of these parties, one of these festivals. So when the time came in Israel's calendar for the celebration, for the, the harvest of the spring, the first harvest of the spring, God wanted them to celebrate a party called First Fruits. And First Fruits began really as a celebration of the past. Now, you've got to remember that Israel was an agrarian society. In fact, their very survival depended upon the production of, of fruits and vegetables from the ground around Israel. And so the first crop a farmer would plant in the early, early spring was a barley crop. But what would not be readily apparent to us today is that this crop had to be planted at the bleakest time of year, the dead of winter. So faith was required in planting the barley crop. I mean, putting the seeds you had saved back from last year's harvest into the dark, cold winter soil required faith. 
I mean, you were depending upon God to provide the critical spring rains without which the barley would not grow and the warmer weather without which the seeds would not set and they would never mature. Now, I don't know about you, but I love the spring. The, the spring is my favorite time of year. I mean, don't, don't you love the way spring just forces winter to loosen its grip? I mean, it's almost magical, isn't it? I mean, the shrubs, the trees that are so barren and dead looking all year long, suddenly they spring to life. First there's blooms, then there are leaves, and then the fruit is produced. I mean, it's a time of year that the Israeli farmer would naturally reflect on the faithfulness of God. I mean, just think about the seasons here in Cincinnati. I mean, you see it happen here every year, like clockwork. Late March, everything looks bleak, the early part of March. Late March comes, and suddenly there are the yellow blossoms of the Pacifica. You remember that? Remember that? I mean, they burst forth. And then as you move into April, you have the white blossoming magnolias, then pears, then followed by the dogwoods right now. Just like clockwork, everything taking place in the right order, and it points to the faithfulness of God's provision in their season. You know, in our industrialized culture, we have lost touch with depending upon God to provide things in its season. Spring was not only a time that showcased the beauty of God's creation, it was also a time that demonstrated the faithfulness of His provision year in and year out. It could be depended upon. And, and in fact, uh, I, I was fascinated with plants as a kid. Uh, my, my mom had a green thumb, and I remember every spring she would plant the, plot, the pots around our patio with caladiums. Now, caladiums grew from bulbs, and so she would take, we had a couple dozen pots, and she would plant each one with three or four caladium bulbs and cover them back up and water them. And then she would say, now, Doug, you'll notice that in a month or so, the caladiums are going to burst forth with these beautiful leaves. I mean, they'll be white and green with red and orange tinges to them. They'll look just like elephant ears. And that just fascinated me. In fact, it fascinated me so much, the next day I went out and dug up the pots to see if I could find those ears. Now, needless to say, the caladiums never did mature. <laughs> and my mom never found out why either, which was good. So planting the crop required faith and it required patience. I mean, you were planting your seeds in the cold, dark winter ground. You had to have the patience to leave them alone. And you had to have the faith that God would provide the rain and the warmth that was needed to grow the seeds. Now, if planting the barley crop required faith, then harvesting the barley crop required even greater faith. Even greater faith was required in harvesting the barley once it was matured. You see, the celebration of first fruits, according to Leviticus 23, took place on the first day after the first Sabbath following Passover. It was a day that God set aside for the celebration of the harvest that was to come, the barley harvest, the first harvest of the new year. And it was called First Fruits simply because it implied more to come. 
first always implies seconds, thirds, and fourth. But what you need to know is that this celebration, the first fruits that God set at this particular day, came at the most inconvenient time for the farmer. I mean, just when his crop is ready to harvest, God required that the harvest be halted. He commanded the farmers to stop. Stop the production. Take the first sheaves of that harvest. I want you to travel to Jerusalem and I want you to present those sheaves to the priest as a way of acknowledging that I have provided this crop for you. Now I read that and the question I have, why couldn't the farmer just thank God right there in the field? I mean, that makes more sense. That's a little more efficient, isn't it? I mean, instead of having to leave town, I mean, just when everything is gearing up for the harvest, the crop is ready, you've got to put everything on hold, you've got to risk the grain rotting in the fields, and you've got to plan a week-long trip to Jerusalem to hand the priest a few sheaves of grain, and all the time... Your harvest is back there at the farm waiting for you. I I mean, why would God do such a thing? Well, notice how God puts it in the rest of the passage. He says, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land which I give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf on the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. So what God is saying here is I want you to acknowledge that I have provided this crop for you. I want you to take the first fruits of what's come out of the ground and I want you to bring them to the priest in Jerusalem. Now I know, I know you're anxious to get the crop in. I mean, you're worried it's going to rot in the fields, but you're going to have to trust me in this. Uh, What I want you to do is pause the harvest. Come to the temple, present the sheaves, and acknowledge what I have provided. So tradition has taught us that that's exactly what the farmers would do. I mean, they would take the first sheaves of their crop, like I've got these first sheaves of barley, and they would plan a trip to Jerusalem. And when they arrived, the priests would meet them at the gates of Jerusalem, And the priest would lead them in procession all the way through Jerusalem. Others would join the procession. There would be maybe some dancing, some singing. It was a joyous time all the way to the Temple Mount. And when they got to the Temple Mount, the priest would then collect all the sheaves from the farmers. And then he would hold them above his head in front of the altar. And he would wave them all directions. It was called a wave offering. And it was an acknowledgement of all that God had provided. But that was not all that God required. Let's look at the rest of the passage. Let's continue on. And you shall offer on this day when you wave the sheaves, Uh, a male lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, 
an offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma, and it's a drink offering offered shall be wine, one-fourth of a hen, and you shall eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the day that you have brought your offering to the Lord. Now, remember, I said this required greater faith for these farmers. You need to know that at the celebration of first fruits, it probably came at the end of the bleakest time of year. Put yourself in the position of the farmer. Their supplies have been spent. Their stored grain has been depleted. Their children are probably hungry. And God says, don't use the grain to feed your family. You need to bring it to me. But that was not all they brought. Uh, They also brought uh, about, the text says that it was a ephah of flour, two-tenths of an ephah. That was about two quarts of flour, much more than I've got here, which was probably the last of all their provisions. Everything they had left, they probably brought with them. And and then there was a quarter hen of, of wine, which was equivalent to about two pints. And God says, I want you to take the flour, the grain, and I want you to mix it with oil. And then I want you to mix with that a drink offering of wine. This is all they probably had left, the last of their supplies. And then I want you to set fire with it. I want you just to burn it up. Which is not happening right now. (laughs) And I'm not really not sure why, but I want you to picture a big flame coming up here about this tall. (laughs) And I'm just going to pour a little more of this on there and see if that helps. This worked just perfectly the other day. You know, I'm not a fire expert like Chad. (laughs) But there you go. And just burn it up. But that was not all that God asked. God said, I also want you to to pick your best lamb. I want you to bring it with you. And I want you to sacrifice or have the priest sacrifice that on the altar as well, as long as your grain offering is there that and the lamb together. So instead of using the grain to feed his family, God said, I want you to take the best of your lamb and sacrifice it, and the last of your grain and wine, and I want you to burn it up. Now, isn't that amazing? So instead of using the grain to provide for your family, you were just, from the the farmer's point of view, it was if you were wasting it. And on top of that, he was not even permitted to eat a peanut butter sandwich along the way for nourishment. He was told he had to fast. He couldn't eat anything along the way until he made his sacrifice and presented his offering. Now, does that sound like a celebration to you? It sounds like a pain in the rear to me. And I bet it does to you. I I, I mean... Why in the world would God require such an irrational thing? I mean, in our pragmatic Western minds, I mean, we look at what is said here. It doesn't make sense. Stop the harvest. Leave the grain in the field. Risk it spoiling. 
travel a week's trip to Jerusalem, set fire to the grain you got, killed your best lamb on top of that, why would God require such an irrational thing? Well, maybe God is a lot like Mr. Miyagi. You know who Mr. Miyagi is, don't you? He's a, the you know karate master from the movie Karate Kid. Remember, wax on, wax off. Watch this video. You know, just as there was more to Mr. Miyagi's instructions than Daniel ever imagined, there's more to the celebration of first fruits than first meets the eye. In fact, first fruits was not just a celebration of the past. It was also a surprise for the future. It just wasn't a time when God said, give your first and your best to me. It was also a time for Israel to discover God's first and best he had given to them. So if you fast forward 1,400 years to the time of Christ, you'll discover a controversy arose about the celebration of first fruits. There were two groups of religious leaders in that day, you've probably heard of them. Maybe you read about them or heard them mentioned in Sunday school or in Mass. There were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees, they controlled the temple in Jerusalem, and they held that first fruits need to be performed strictly according to the, the directions in Leviticus 23 we've been reading. Uh, where it says specifically, on the day after the Sabbath, the priest should make the wave offering. So they held that first fruits needed to be to take place precisely on the first day after the first Sabbath following Passover. Now remember, Passover began on the first full moon of the spring. So when Passover began this past year, it started on April the fifteenth. It was Tuesday, tax day. It was Passover. It was different. It's different date every year because it's on the moon phase. So if it began on Tuesday, April 15th this year, that meant that first fruits would be celebrated five days later on Sunday because that was the day, the first Sunday following the Sabbath. So, for instance, if uh, the uh, Passover was celebrated on Friday, then first fruits would be celebrated two days later on Sunday. The point is this, that the Sadducees always celebrated first fruits on Sunday that followed that last Sabbath after Passover. It was always on Sunday. Now, there's a second group of people, the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they kind of had control over all the synagogues in Israel, and they had a little different view of this passage they focused in on the word Sabbath, is used here in Leviticus 23, and said, now we believe that word could refer to Saturday. Remember, that's the Jewish Sabbath, Saturday, which would be a traditional day of rest. Or it could refer to any designated festival by God as a special day of rest. So they held that first fruits would take place and be celebrated on the first day after the beginning of the week of unleavened bread, which always took place the day after Passover. 
So let's go back to the example. If Passover took place like it did this past year on the 15th of April, that was Tuesday, the next day was unleavened bread, Wednesday, and then the next day was the day they celebrated first fruits on Thursday. So you had two different groups. Sadducees saying had to be celebrated on Sunday. Pharisees said, well, it doesn't matter what day of the week, so long as it it's the day after the celebration, the first day of the celebration of unleavened bread. So they had these opposing views, and it created some controversy and confusion during the time of Christ. So this old rabbi comes along, and is right after the time of Christ, and he makes an interesting statement in a letter he writes to a church that he planted in Corinth. This old rabbi's name is Paul, and I want you to notice exactly what he says. He says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Can you see what Paul's saying? He's making a connection. Just like young Daniel understood for the first time why Mr. Miyagi had him wax his car and paint his house. Paul sees something that God has set in motion for thousands of years. Now, you remember at Easter that we saw that Jesus died on Passover. In other words, the day the sacrificial lamb was, was sacrificed for the wrongdoing of Israel, Jesus was sacrificed on the cross outside of Jerusalem. Now, the New Testament indicates that Jesus died on Friday around mid-afternoon, somewhere around 3 o'clock. Then he was hastily buried before Sabbath and the celebration of unleavened bread would begin the next day, which would begin around dusk, around 6 p.m. that afternoon. So Jesus was in the grave on Friday. He was in the grave all day Saturday. He was in the grave Sunday until the women came to the tomb and found it, it, it was empty. I mean, can you see what Paul is saying here in the text? He's saying the celebration of first fruits in the Old Testament is really a picture of something that God would fulfill through giving Israel a Messiah centuries later. So, so that Israel would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was this Messiah. Jesus not only was raised from the dead, but he rose from the dead on a specific day. The celebration of first fruits. But, but remember, I said the first fruits really implied there's more to come. First means second and third. So, in the same way that the celebration of first fruits anticipated a barley harvest to come, the resurrection of Jesus Christ anticipated that something would come equally as exciting. It points to the promise that anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior would one day be resurrected from the dead. In fact, that's exactly what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth. Look back at the verse. Right in the middle of the verse it says, For as in Adam all died. You see, you and I were considered dead with regard to a relationship with God. But if you placed your faith 
in Christ, if you've leaned into Jesus as your Savior, notice what Paul says, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, referring to Jesus being the first of many who would be raised from the dead. So Jesus' resurrection from the dead was actually the fulfillment of the celebration of first fruits. Jesus was given as the first fruits of resurrection as also a guarantee of our resurrection one day. Now remember I said there was a controversy that arose over when they would celebrate this day of first fruits. Remember the Pharisees said it had to be on Sunday. Uh, I mean, the Sadducees said it had to be on Sunday. The Pharisees said, no, it could be any day of the week. It just had to follow uh, the day after the first day of celebration of unleavened bread. So who was right? Which group nailed it? Well, the Bible tells us in the year that Jesus was crucified, Passover took place that Friday which meant unleavened bread took place Saturday, which meant first fruits then took place the next day Sunday, the day Jesus actually rose from the dead. But did you know that that Sunday that Jesus rose from the dead was the first time in years these two calendars, the Sadducees and the Pharisees' calendars, lined up, and it just so happened they celebrated first fruits on the very same day together. Now, for those who paid attention to God's festivals, to God's party schedule, there was no confusion over the fact that this is Jesus. He is the Messiah. I mean, He rose on first fruits. But they also realized that His resurrection was a guarantee. It points to another resurrection, your resurrection, one day when He returns. You see, in the same way Daniel began to see the true meaning behind wax on and wax off, so he never doubted Mr. Miyagi again, but trusted him all the way through to coach him to the championship. Seeing what God did at first fruits just gives me confidence that I can trust God through any situation in life. You see, when it comes to the things of God, things are not always as they seem. I mean, for instance, God encourages us to save sex for marriage, but that feels limiting. So we dismiss it as restricting our freedom. But things may not be all that they seem. Or, for instance, His exhortation to be truthful. Uh, it feels like uh, that, that is too restricting. It's inconvenient, so we don't give the full truth to our bosses or to our employees But things may not be as they really seem. Or maybe uh, the the instruction He gives to go to our spouses and uh, seek forgiveness for some wrong we have done. That just feels too humiliating so we don't even think about it. But things may not be as they seem. In fact, God encourages us to give of our time, our talents, our treasures And that may feel as ludicrous to you as those farmers marching all the way to the temple to sacrifice their least and their last and watching it burned up. But you need to know that one of the ways we grow closer to God is by releasing the things to Him that are closest to our hearts, our time, our treasures. 
you see, what I've learned in life is that walking with God by faith many times means believing in advance what will only make sense in reverse. See, Jesus didn't come to raise crops. He came to raise people and give you a newness of life. In fact, would you listen to Jim's story about how he discovered that? This is my friend Jim Statmiller, who I got the pleasure of serving with in Cancun in February. Uh, Jim, can you give us a little background on what connected you with Horizon and, and brought you to us? My friend Phil Heimlich and his wife Rebecca invited me to come to Country Day School to see a skit they were in. And I thought, any group of people that can make fun of Phil Heimlich like this must be a good group of people. And then when I went to the atrium and I saw Mr. and Mrs. Linder there, And knowing what they've done for the community, I thought, well, I'm going to come back next week. And I've been coming back ever since. Well, Jim, you're very involved and certainly serving a lot, but I know you've got involved in a small group. Can you describe that, what you've learned from it? I'm in a a, a Bible study with a group of guys, and I'm also on a a book study with another group of guys. And I've really enjoyed what I've learned from that. And one of the points that I've learned as far as as serving God. And I used to look at it, oh, this is just something i got to do. Whereas now, I look at it more, I'm honored to serve. And I hope they ask me to do more things to serve. Uh, I've had the opportunity to work on the parking team, work on City Gospel Mission. Uh, got to go on a Cancun mission trip, which uh, really was very eye-opening for me. I was scared to death about going saw the videos and the pictures from people in the past, and I was able to go and went with you and a bunch of other guys and uh, sure learned a lot about how much help is needed in places like Cancun, Mexico, for the uh, back-to-back ministries and the orphans that they are trying to, to heal and to help, and was just very impressed with their organization and the way that they do things and the way that they bring people like us to go down and to serve. Well, I've had the pleasure of getting to know you more since our trip and have learned that you've gone through some really difficult times. Can you talk a little bit about what those challenges were and how you made it through? Well, I got sick. I had a thyroid problem, a hyperthyroid, and I didn't really pay attention to it. And uh, I got I got sick with that, and then I picked up uh, Gillian Barre syndrome. But that uh, that knocked me out, uh, paralyzed me from the waist down. My hands were on fire and didn't work for a while, and I was uh, uh, I I couldn't walk for about a year. When you're when you're laying flat on your back and you cannot get out of bed, your faith uh, increases exponentially. And I uh, started praying more and started reading the Bible more and started to put my faith more in God because for me, everything was always, I'll do it. I'm going to do it. I'll get it done. And uh, I couldn't do it. So I had to rely on my faith in God. When you've gotten that sense of, of love that your father is planning your future and caring for you and bringing you through illness, what does that cause you to do in response? You appreciate it a lot more. You say your prayers with more sincerity and more vigor. You consider 
all the decisions you've made, right or wrong, and when you've made the wrong decisions, and still you've been able to get through it. That, 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 that's all God, and that's all belief in God. And my, uh, my belief has been tested many times, but as I get older and I learn more, I realize that God is in my heart, and God is trying to help me to improve as a, as a, uh, as a parent, as a man, as a friend. And I'm just very thankful and consider myself very blessed for the life that, that God has given me. When you discover a God who's been so generous to you, when you begin to explore that, get to the place of starting to believe it, begin to look at the evidence of how clear it is, not it's just something you believe, it's something that happened in history, that begins to change you. You begin to say, I want to be generous to others the same way God was generous to me. Those pictures you just looked at were about folks who said, I'm not going to go through the motions anymore. I want to make this real. I want to give to others. I want to give here, City Gospel. I want to give near. Some of the areas we work with CityLink, we work with mission trips, and I want to give far. I want to go on a mission trip. We have 12 to 20 mission trips a year because we want to generously give. The reason we've fed over a million people in the last three years with Feed My Starving Children is because we believe in giving first fruits because God gave us his first fruits of Jesus. So just know if you are excited and if you're new to journeying your faith, we want to help you take the next step. And part of that is we create environments. You know, we don't even do an offering in our services, right? Because we're so worried you might think that the reason we have services is to get something from you. And yet for those who begin to, to take heart and say, well, I want to be part of this. You know, that's why we have our offering boxes out in the foyer. We almost hide them, don't we? You know, if, you, if people come like, where do I give? It's over there. Where? Because we want you to be so bought in to what we're doing, so bought into what God has done, that then you say, I want to be generous. Not out of guilt, not out of shame, not because somebody twisted my arm. Because I'm beginning to see that God was so generous to me, I want to give to others. So if you come prepared to give, you can give and know that your money goes to these different uh, endeavors that we have. If part of you is saying, you know, for years I thought about going on a trip. I love being a doctor. I love being a nurse. I love the construction I'm involved in. I'd love to do that with folks who could never give back, who would never have a home and never have health care or never be able to go to school if it wasn't for my $150 a month. That's like $150 a year for them to school for a year. If you want to be part of that and you want to step out and not just go through the motions, but be generous with your first fruits, we want to help you. We want to help you. So let us know how we can help. If you want to give us part of the offering, if you want to sign up for a trip, sign up one of those cards and drop that in the offering box, we'd love to help you take the next step in your first fruits. Thanks for being here today. We will see you all next week as we continue Jewish Jesus. Thanks again.